Psalm 122, verse 1 reads, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And that just resonates with me because I feel that every Sunday morning when we come together as a family in the Lord here, I'm glad to be here with you and here to share in the word of God with you and to worship him together. What a joy, what a privilege. Then down a few verses in verse 6, it says this, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Prospering because we love Jerusalem should not be the motivation for our praying, but nonetheless, we're called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This weekend is uh, a celebration there, a regular celebration, annual celebration, Simchat Torah. It means joy of Torah. And just when the Jewish people come together in a weekend celebration, and they celebrate the completion of the reading of the Torah through, through the, from the past year and celebrate the opportunity to read it through again the following, beginning, of course, the day after, or Monday in the following year. And as is typical of Hamas and the terrorists, they'll attack on holidays for Jerusalem for Israel. That's what 73 was about. That's what this is about this time. Hamas attacked. They fired over 3,500 missiles from the Gaza Strip into there. There have been over 600 uh, Israelis killed, over 2,000 injured. 3,500 missiles fired in there, unprovoked. Other than their old line, their occupation of our land, which is not theirs, that it never was their land. So pray for Jerusalem. The first time since 1973, the Knesset, the parliament there in Israel, has declared war. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, said, we are at war. This is our 9-11, he said, and we are at war. He called up all the reserves, which means every male, up, able-bodied male up to 51 years of age is in reserve over there, and they're going forth. He said, we're going to stop it. And, of course, from the other side, they, he calls all the Muslims together. We are finally going to deliver, destroy the occupation of our land. So it's a an interesting time, and it's a painful and it's a sad time. And in New York, the Muslim squad that happens to be in our own legislative branch, the representative led by AOC, is calling for a ceasefire. And in New York City today, they're having a, a gathering there of the Socialist Democrats supporting the Palestinians. And the thing we need to understand is this, ladies and gentlemen, the Palestinians aren't the Arabs, they never were. The Palestinians are the Israelites. In fact, before 1948, subsequent to 1948, Arafat, they wouldn't, in that coalition, the PLO, wouldn't accept the term, the name, the identification Palestinians. They wouldn't because it was Israel's people. And subsequent to that, it felt, felt like it's politically astute for us to assume that title, so they began to refer to themselves as the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Several years ago, I was on standing on the top of King David Museum in Jerusalem. It was a beautiful day, looking out over the city, and looking at the Temple Mount and whatever. 
And a gentleman walked up to him with a backpack, and we started talking. He was really a great guy. He was born in 1949. He was an American citizen, an Israeli-American citizen. He was living in our country, and his citizenship was there, of course. Uh, and he was there in Israel, in Jerusalem that week, to enroll his daughter in the Hebrew University, which is right over there on the hill. And he had to have his credentials with him to do that, and he pulled out, we talked about this Palestinian term, he pulled out his birth certificate, and he said, look, he said, see here, I was born in 1949, and it says here, I'm a Palestinian. We are the Palestinians. So, here we are. When did it begin? A long time ago. When shall it end? In that day, when the Lord Jesus Christ touches down again. But pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It breaks my heart. Of course, innocent people on both sides are killed. Men, women, boys, and girls killed because of this ongoing thing. And even in Jerusalem, they have Muslims in the parliament. That's okay. They work with them. I've been over there touring five times. I had an Arab guide and a Jewish, I mean, Arab bus driver and a Jewish guide. They were great friends, and I became friends with them. But the devil always works, always. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, our text today is, Roger says, it's 1 John 3, 32, 24. It's actually 21 through 24. It's the last four verses of the third chapter of 1 John. We'll read that in a little bit. Last Sunday, our emphasis was on the Lord's Supper, the significance of the Lord's Supper, which is a wonderful spiritual Wonderful spiritual worship experience for us because it enables us to conscientiously and carefully and gratefully come to the table. Provides us a time to, with gratitude, acknowledge the horrific, horrific sacrifice of the Lord Jesus to purchase our redemption, but also to come carefully and cautiously examining our hearts as we prepare for sharing the table together. Sunday before last, our subject was knowing and maintaining confidence before God. And we're going to follow on that theme today a little bit. Our text for that message was 1 John chapter 3, 19 through 21. And today in our message, we're going to review chapter uh, verse 21 briefly before we go on with the rest of the text. And our subject is, of course, the confidence that comes from obeying and pleasing the Lord. I love the song service. Those songs just fit, didn't they? Massage my old soul as we sang. Well, our text, 1 John chapter 3, 21 through 24. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments. And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. Holy Father, we love you and we love your word. We love, Master, belonging to you. 
We love, Father, not being our own. We love being blood-bought and belonging to you. That we love coming to this place, love opening your word together, love studying it together. Thank you, Lord, for these, these incredible privileges of grace that you are blessing us with. And Lord, we lift Israel to you. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray, God, you'd protect their forces and defeat the enemy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, sound like a condition, right? If our heart's not condemning us, then we have confidence before God. Remember, this is not a salvation text. None of these have been salvation texts. Because these are messages to the church, those who are born of God. So it's not a possibility of, oh, my heart is condemning me, so I may not be saved. No, so my heart's condemning me because I got something to miss between me and my father that is hindering my fellowship with him. And I got to get back into that unhindered fellowship with him. That's what this is about. The word condemn us, condemn us. Is, remember that word katagenisko. Genisko is to know by experience. Catagenisco is saying that we have learned something by observation, and that observation is related to our own heart. We've come to understand that in our own heart, there's something's not right. It's an attitude or it's actions that we have done, and they're not right. And our heart would condemn us because of that. And as we pointed out, that's a work of our conscience. And everybody's got a conscience. That's a fingerprint of God's creative genius and design. Every human being has a conscience. Christians have a conscience, but our conscience never works alone because the Holy Spirit of God has come to indwell us. And so the Holy Spirit of God is working in us. Our conscience is working in God in us. The spirit of God is bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And he is guiding us in, along as we walk as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our conscience is not in this fight alone against sin, selfishness or whatever it is in our lives that would be a distraction and a hindrance to our fellowship with the Father, that Holy Spirit. Praise God for the presence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, don't, isn't it marvelous to be walking along and all of a sudden, and there's just a reminder about this, a reminder about that, you know? And I noticed that more now, Barbara, than ever before. You know, I'd go along and Waver would say, remember this, Ray. Waver would say, remember that, Ray. Waver's not saying those now. The Holy Spirit said, Ray, remember this. You forgot this to do this or whatever. It's just simple things about life, responsibilities. But he also does this convicting work, this directing work. Get back in the path of the will of God. You're hindering over near the side here or the other. Working in us, our conscience, praise God, does not have to work alone. Paul wrote in uh, Acts 24, 16. Herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. That word exercise means to engage in, to learn by repetition and strenuous effort. He said, I work at it to have a conscience void of offense. What does that mean? Blameless. I work at it. I discipline myself. Paul said, I buffet my body. I make it my slave. He disciplined himself to have a conscious void of offense toward God and towards man. And you know what? The latter is a given if the first is right. If our conscience is void of offense toward God, we're going to be right with our fellow man. 
But if we're not right with our fellow man, whatever it may be, we're not going to be right this way either. So if we do our due diligence, spiritually and behaviorally, like Paul did, we can maintain a clear conscience before God in prayer. And you notice in our text, that's, that verse uh, 22 begins with the word and, the conjunction, and. So if we have confidence with God, and, then what? Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. So it's linked together. That clear conscience is linked to our, our prayer life there. Uh, because what? We keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That word keep means to observe. It's a present tense active verb. It means not only to observe, but to continue to observe his commandments. Then do, it's a present tense active verb too. It means to carry out or perform. So we are observing and carrying out and performing, and it's a continuous action all the way along our earthly sojourn as we travel from here to glory. Continuing present action, keeping and doing. Glory to God. If we do that, keeping and doing, keeping his commandments and doing what's pleasing in his sight, we're going to have a clear conscience, right? And there's great freedom in that. We not, might not be as wrinkled when we get older. I don't know yet. I'm not there yet, Chuck. <laughs> Julie this morning asked me, when did I come to the doctrines of grace? I said, you mean, when did I get the second blessing? And that's what we call it. And she said, yes. I said, 1973. And then she said, the, had the audacity to say, well, that's the year I was born. <laughs> Immediately that made me realize I'm old enough to be Jack, Jimmy's daddy. This is humbling. <laughs> Keeping and doing the will of God. Now let's think about this for a moment. Because keeping and doing is linked to having a clear conscience. But it's right following getting what we ask in prayer, right? We ask and we receive because we are keeping and doing. Suppose someone were to ask us, why do you keep God's commandments? And so as our answer was, we'd say, well, because God told us to, that's why. And then suppose that they ask, is there any other reason you keep God's commandments? You say, well, yes, you know, if we keep his commandments, we receive what we ask for in prayer. Is it possible that our answers might indicate that we have a spiritual problem? Those two answers. Is it possible that they would indicate we might have some kind of spiritual problem going on in our lives, in our hearts? If our motivation for keeping the commandments of God is to stay out of trouble with God and avoid chastisement with God and get what we ask from God, 
does not, not relegate us to nothing more than mercen, mission, spiritual mission, I can't even say, spiritual mercenaries. Mercenaries, spiritual mercenaries. We keep his commandments. We try to please him so we stay out of trouble and get what we want. That's what a, a, a military mercenary does. He obeys the command of the armies he's serving. Why? To get what he wants, the pay do him for serving. He doesn't care about their values particularly. He wants that money, so sure, I'll help you fight the excess or the wise or the disease. And you want political mercenaries uh, mercenary do the same thing, right? They sell political influence for monetary gain. I understand we have some of those in our country. But the scriptures show us, reveal to us, the only right motivation to obey God. And it's not for what we can get from God. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve thy God, the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, and all thy soul. Jesus in 2.37 of Matthew quotes this, and adds one line. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And he said in 14.23 of the Gospel of John, If a man love me, he will keep my commandments. He will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come with him and make our abode with him. So the, the only non-flesh motive, the only non-flesh motive. See, fleshly motives are geared towards self-preservation and self-profitability, right? The, so the only non-flesh motive to obey the commandments of God and to please him with our behavior is from a heart that loves the Father. That's it. If we love the Lord with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds, the natural fruition of that, the natural output of that is we're going to obey him. We're going to obey the Father. We're going to desire to live for him. But notice that John takes this another, just a little higher note, Okay. When he says, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Well, that's more than just keeping commandments. Right? Keeping commandments is included in that. But doing what is pleasing, keeping his commandments and doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's another level here altogether. Because you see... Keeping commandments only might be a matter of merely subjection. I'm submitted to the Lord. I'm going to obey Him. But doing things that are pleasing to Him is a matter of love. Would you agree? Here are the Ten Commandments. Okay, I haven't done any of these things. I'm not going to do any of these things. I'm in subjection. I'm a disciple. 
But then if I'm looking about to do things that are pleasing to him, that's a whole new category. The rich young ruler went away. Why? He hadn't done all these things. What he hadn't done was wonderful. What he was will, wasn't willing to do was not so good because he walked away from the Lord Jesus Christ on that day. So, doing what pleasing his sight can only come naturally and supernaturally from a heart that loves the Lord. That's what Jesus said about his relationship with the Father. John 8, 29. He that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me, for I always do those things that are pleasing to him. I always do those things that are pleasing. <coughs> Pardon me. Now notice <coughs> in verse 23. <coughs> the word commandment is in the singular. Both times it's in the text, Okay. This is his commandment. And then in the last, he gave us commandment. By the way, both of those being singular, I'm sorry, but the pronouns there are different. There are two uses of the pronoun his and one use of the pronoun he. And if you go back up through the text where we've been reading, you'll find that the pronouns his refer to God the Father. We're keeping his commandments. But you look at the latter, it's about Jesus Christ as he gave us commandment. He's the one that gave that commandment in John, Gospel of John. So we have the Father and the Son. Now what does that do? That gives you a glimpse of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Subtly, but certainly in that verse. Jesus is God. And you know, if we look at that verse and that singular commandment, and by the way, he links the two together, obeying and loving, a single commandment there. You say, well, goodness, what could I do more pleasing to the Father than to love his Son? What could I do more pleasing to him than that? Do the things that are pleasing to him. Love the Lord Jesus Christ, his son that he sent to save us. That is baptism. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized, came up out of the water. A voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, while Peter was still talking, a voice out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. The Father is pleased with the Son. I believe He expects us to be pleased with the Son too. And pleasing Him would certainly include loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally, in that verse where it says, Believe on the. I'm so sorry. Believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Believe on the name. There is no preposition own in the original Greek. Not a. And so it literally means <clears throat> that we should believe the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Believe the name. Now, in other places in the scriptures, that says on the name or in the name or whatever. But here, it's to believe the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's an errorist subjunctive. It means an action that began in the past. It's continuing now. Believing on the name. Believing the name. As the Greek has it. Believing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kenneth Wiest in his Wiest Word Studies says, should believe is an errorist subjunction, subjunctive, and a constitutive errorist. In other words, he's saying that this verse, right, this passage right here shows the entire course of a Christian's life in a panoramic view. The whole course of our life, believing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the whole tenor of our life, from the point, from the genesis of our conversion, when we came to Christ, all the way to glory, should be this, believing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that's implied in His name. That's His deity, His divine attributes, His uh, redemptive work, His character. His work as the Messiah. And it's all there. In that threefold title, God's Son and Jesus in Christ. Jesus is Jesus. That's the Old Testament Joshua. What did the Old Testament Joshua do? Well, he's the one that led him into the promised land. Jesus is the New Testament Joshua. Jesus. Who is he? He's the one that leads us all the way into the promised land of glory. Christ. Christos. That's the translation, Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic, Messiah. Messiah. Believing in, loving, trusting in, serving the Messiah of God. That's a work that is pleasing unto the Father. A.T. Robinson quotes Westcoff, which is a commentator from way back. He refers to this as this phrase, believe the name of his son Jesus Christ, as a compressed creed. You know, a creed, a statement of faith, you know. A compressed creedal confession. Believe the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And you know what? If you can say that from the bottom of your feet all the way up through your heart and out to the top of your head as a creedal confession, you're spot on. <laughs> because that's what this is all about. Serving Christ, the Messiah of God. God, give us grace. It's a mental, it's, the belief is a mental ascent but it's the surrender of a heart. And that's why this foolishness a few years ago, they were talking about, well, you know, I, I accepted him as my savior, but I didn't surrender, hadn't surrendered to him until I was as Lord till about a few years later. Poppy, cop. You know why? Because you can't separate who he is and take him apart. It's a matter of it's a matter of failure of studying the word personally and teaching it accurately and precisely from in the classrooms and in the pulpits where we understand who Christ is. You cannot accept him other than what he is. And that is Lord. And that's the Messiah. And that's everything else that goes with that name. Notice the confidence given us by the person of the Holy Spirit there. He that keepeth his commandments, verse 24, and dwelleth, dwelleth in him, he and him. 
And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. So in verse 23 and 24 together, what do we have? We have the whole trinity right there. God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, which is the spirit of Christ in us. It's all right there together. This concept of mutual abiding, it's the first time it's ever been mentioned in this epistle. But it's exactly what Christ prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He said, that they may be one, Father, as thou, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be one in us. Mutual abiding. Why? That the world will know that you have sent me. And I'll tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, I believe the way that plays out is this. If we're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, we're obeying the commandments of God. We're doing those things that are pleasing His sight. And we're continuously and conscientiously doing that. And we're exercising ourselves like the Apostle Paul did to buffet my body and make it a slave or whatever it takes to walk that way. Not only do I believe the world will know that God the Father sent Jesus, that I believe they'll know He sent us too. Because He'll be visible in us. And God help us if it's not. John brings it all together, doesn't he? He repeats things, he brings back around, but you can see the purpose in this great apostle. He brought it all together. He's been talking about belief in Christ, love for the siblings in Christ, and moral righteousness. And here he brings it all down. And no one can truthfully say that he or she lives in Christ and Christ abides in him unless he is obedient to those three commands. If you're not loving the siblings, you're not seeking to walk in moral righteousness, you're not exercising your faith in Christ by submission, you can't say Christ is dwelling in you. You can't. And this is how we know that we know. <laughs> this is how we know that we know. He lives in us. He gave us his spirit. Paul says, 8.16 of Romans, his spirit, the spirit himself, translation says itself, but it's the spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And hear me now, ladies and gentlemen, if there's anyone here in the auditorium and the sound of my voice anywhere out there in the land, if you have not experienced and are not experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind, bearing witness that you are a child of God, that can only mean one thing. If you never had that experience of affirmation by the Holy Spirit of God, then you're without God and without Christ and having a hope until you come to Christ. That's it. Because the Spirit of God is in every one of us that's been born of God. There are no exceptions to that. And going all the way back to our personal experience from first coming to Christ, that day you were born of God, all the way forth, consistently confirming that we are His children. So if you've not had that experience, enabling you to first believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't go back to a time in your personal history when you felt that drawing, that wooing of the Holy Spirit of God bringing you to faith in Christ, if you've not had that experience, 
and you're not having that present experience of him filling you with love for the brothers and a desire to obey the commandments of God and continually creating in you that desire. It's an ongoing desire to know what the word of God says and to obey it. And you find yourself, wow, I love these people that are my brothers and sisters or fellow members in the church or whatever you want to say. I'm really growing to love these people. Just met them, but I'm growing to love these people. That's real stuff. There are people here that I just met this year. You just met me this year. John and Brandon in that back pew out there. There's such a kindred spirit between us. That's Jesus. That's the spirit of God. We're gonna, you guys, that's the Lord. And it doesn't come apart from him. If you haven't had any of that experience, if you're not having that experience right now, listen to this verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. But if you haven't had any of that experience I've named, what's this say next? Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The spirit of God is a testimony that we are Christ. Because the Spirit of God indwells us for the moment that we're born of God. And what does Paul say? It's the earnest of our redemption. <laughs> All the way to glory. Earnest of redemption. I thought you were already saved. I am already saved. I was redeemed spiritually. This body, I'm still in it. And it's, that's the resurrection. The earnest of our redemption. All the way to glory. The presence abiding in us, the Holy Spirit of God. Teaching us and guiding us and directing us and working with our conscience. And you know what? Our conscience can get seared and callous. But the Holy Spirit never does. <laughs> the Holy Spirit will keep us on track. Glory to God. What a gift of grace. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Because he permanently indwells every Christian. And if you're not having that experience, please do not be ashamed to admit it. But come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Nobody around here will look down upon you. No one around here will say anything negative. But come to Jesus in childlike faith. You'll notice that I left out the part about prayer, the getting and receiving. I did that intentionally. And I'll address that in what I speak on 1 John chapter 5, verse 15. But I want this focus today to be just this. The presence of the Lord Jesus in me and in thee. The greatest blessing this side of glory is his presence in us, ours in him. And this directs us all the way home. Master, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you that we have had those days in our past where we felt that drawing of the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes, creating us that a desire to cry out for salvation in the Lord Jesus. I remember it well, Master. I remember it well.
Thank you, Father, for the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word that instructs us how to walk. And Lord, again, if there's a person here or there within the sound of my voice, I pray, Lord, that this would be the day, this day, if they're yet unredeemed, not having yet surrendered a life to the Lord Jesus, I pray this be the day that you come and cry out to thee, Lord, save my soul. God grant it. God grant it. In Jesus' name, amen.